Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. Ahoy! My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my usual co-host, Tom Watts. Hi, Tom. Hello, Lori. Today, we will be talking to Laura Albert, otherwise known as J.T. Leroy, the subject of the most fascinating documentary we've ever seen called Author, the J.T. Leroy Story. We will explain all. Stay tuned. We are really thrilled to be here with Laura Albert. Also known as Laura Albert. In Another Life, also known as J.T. Leroy, and there's a new documentary about her, which is fabulous. We just saw it yesterday. It's called Author, the J.T. Leroy story, and it is fascinating. Let's start by talking about Sarah. Mm. This is a, a novel that was a national bestseller, a huge hit, and it's a fantastic story of a young boy who is, sometimes thinks of himself as a boy, sometimes thinks of himself as a girl. Given the kind of talk about trans identities now, very much ahead of its time, and a beautifully written, wonderful novel, and you were the author. Okay, wait a minute. I'm just going to slide off my seat here. <laughs> thank, thank you. That's thank you. <laughs> it's very new to be sitting with someone and having them talk to me about the work directly, even though the books have been out for ten over ten years. Mm. 15 years? Right. So it's news. And not have somebody else sit there and say, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And me sit there and go, woo! Yeah. (laughs) On the sidelines, in the shadows. So thank you. (laughs) Well, the reason it is new, if I may just, for our listeners who may not know, uh, some of them, J.T. Leroy was a best-selling author, and it became known that J.T. Leroy, who did interviews and was a young, very kind of attractive young blonde kid in a wig who looked great and sunglasses and clothes. And his biography was that he was raised by a woman who was basically a truck stop hooker and he himself had turned tricks. That was his biography, his backstory. The books were about that kind of life. They weren't autobiographies. They were labeled as fiction. And the actual author was not J.T. Leroy, but the woman we are sitting with now, Laura Albert, And it's a very complex story. I really recommend the film. But let me just start by asking you this. Two things occurred to me yesterday. The first, Tom said, wow, she was really before her time, one. And then two, I also thought, what a powerful personality you must have to move people around like chess pieces in a way. I'm not suggesting that they didn't agree to do it and wanted to do it. But, I mean, you really not only created these fictional worlds, but then you created a fictional world outside of the fictional world. And that took not writing talent, but a kind of very strong personality and understanding of people. I'm writing my memoir right now, and I'm really getting to see the one-to-one correlation of the formation, the very organic formation of where things came from. And it's very much the way an oyster creates a pearl out of irritation, out of suffering. And it might be this beautiful, valuable thing, but it is an irritant or it is created against an irritant. And for me, what I've been writing about 
is how I would call hotlines. I dropped out of school. My last grade of completion was sixth grade. And the thing is, I went through a trial in federal court. All of this is public record. I actually waived my medical and legal. It's like, people, do your research. There are people out there that can verify everything I say. There are people who are my social workers, my therapists who are in the group home with me. You don't believe me. It's very available. Anyway, I was calling these hotlines because I felt so much shame. I think I disassociated very young. And the way I would process what happened was I would have stories that I would always watch. It was like watching a movie that was always running. And I I didn't understand that other people didn't do this as well. I remember, I don't know how old I was, but my sister was maybe three or four. and She couldn't sleep. And I said to her, well, what do you think about? Because I was like, well, what about the boys and story? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, what do you think about before you go to bed? And she just like, I don't know, butterflies, my day. (laughs) And I started asking other people and I realized they didn't have boys that came and they didn't watch stories of them being abused. And it just blew my mind. And I was like, oh my God, I'm different. There's something wrong. And I already knew that about because of what had happened. When I dropped out of school and my mom basically let me stay home, we kind of switched places where she was a teacher and she went back to school. And I took care of things at home, took care of my sister. She was dating. She was bringing home a lot of different men. It was a very horrible situation. But I called hotlines and I normalized crazy. So I was both in and outside of insanity. So if anyone's ever been on drugs where you feel the urge to do something that you know is dangerous and you have this voice that says, you're okay, don't do that, don't climb out the window, you cannot fly, but there's this other voice saying, you can fly, this is real, you have wings. It's like that. Mm. I had the duality going on. Mm. And I normalized it so My mother put me in a hospital, which was horrible, when I was on my 14th birthday, the day after. It was St. Vincent's, and it was a nightmare kind of a place. Kids were in with adults. Children uh, were molested there. I actually, one of the tapes was I was interviewing girls that I was later in a group home with because I was outraged, and I was trying to document this. So if you listen to the whole tape, I have other girls talking about how they were molested in St. Vincent's. We were all Later, a lot of us met at Payne Whitney. I didn't get molested because I refused to shower. I figured out right away what to do. But I do have a survival instinct, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, I got very adept at being able to survive crazy and normalize it so I wouldn't be put back into St. Vincent's. Mm. One of the things you talk about in the film, which I found very interesting, was that you were abused as a young girl by a family friend. Is that that the correct designation? And you, like any child who was abused, had a lot of self-loathing attached to the act. And so rather than write directly about what had happened to you, you said, I'm going to make up this other person. He's going to be a really pretty blonde-haired boy because people will care about what happens to him because you had self-loathing about yourself. 
And so you made this avatar, as you say, or persona or character, and you told your story through his story, changing lots of details, which then later people felt betrayed by, which then opened a discussion of what is fiction and what does it matter what the author's background is. I think you quote John Stewart, who says, oh my God, fiction writers are writing fiction. Yeah, it was quite the big blow up. One thing you have to remember is in the 70s, they weren't even really talking about child abuse. It was illegal to run away, I believe, until 74. Mm -hmm. I mean, we weren't even talking about breast cancer. My mother's cousin is Betty Rollin, who wrote First You Cry, and before that they called it chest cavity. There was a real silence around women. Uh, women's bodies were shameful. I mean, you couldn't even say breast. So when they started doing after-school specials and they started talking about running away, it was always a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, cute little boy, always. Mm. And I absorbed that. And when they started talking about girls, it was always a thin, beautiful girl who looked like she walked out of Seventeen magazine. I did not see chubby, fat Jewish girls. I did not see anyone of color. I did not see anyone remotely like me. And the stories were always kind of romantic. And mine, what had happened, I felt so really disgusting and gross. And I felt like I... I think that's very common, but there wasn't the language. No one was talking about it at all. So Whoopi Goldberg, in her show, she did this thing where she would put on a yellow T-shirt on her head, and she would say, look at my long blonde hair and my blue, blue eyes. It's knowing who has the power and wanting to be that, because that is the dominant image in our culture. If I could be blonde hair, blue-eyed little boy, I would be authenticated and be rescued and safe. Mm. And later that morphed into having a man protect me as a lover because what I saw on the street, having a man like you as a girl was just men treated girls like one poker chip. So it was a dime a dozen, but a man protecting his boy, that was Vahalia. That was mm. really power. And I really wanted to be protected in that way. One of the things that makes the kind of story of the creation of these books and the story of your relation to these books so interesting is that you do have a very specific path into the creation that's not everybody's. And on the other hand, there's something very normal, common, that is, there's no novelist who doesn't know what it means to be inhabited by a character, to be kind of in the thrall, in the position of the person that they're writing about or mm -hmm. the, the voice that they're writing from, mm -hmm. right? We all know what that is like once you go there. So once you're writing, you're kind of doing the novelists, a common novelist's work, however you got to that moment. Yeah, exactly. And just to go back, there was no choice around JT. I never, ever said, I am now going to become this other being. When... I picked up the phone to call Dr. Owens, which is something I started doing, was calling hotlines. I started doing it when, I don't even know how old, probably, I think I made my first call like when I was around 12 or 13. I would never do it as myself, and they were all different. He could have been from Ireland. He could have been from, I even 
had a Swedish boy, Yaga Kama from Sverige, min mare, min far. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, all over the place. I never knew who was going to come out. Mm. And there was no choice. It really just felt like a vomit reflex, to put it as a highfalutin literary as it can. <laughs> but yeah, it's a complete transmigration of spirit, really. That's what writing is. You come in faith to the process of writing, and I came in faith to the process of giving this other person life. But I needed to trick myself in a way. So if it was coming from me, and I had to read it as me and go out with it as me, I was disgusting and horrible, so there's no way I could present it. Like that picture in the film where you see me sitting in the audience, if suddenly everyone had turned, mm. like in a mm. scene from Carrie, and if they said, it's you, yeah. I would have sunk into the ground and died. Mm. Died. I found it so interesting how when you eventually came out as Laura Albert, that the range of reactions to that coming out Especially interesting to me was that certain artists were like, oh, yeah, so you're a writer. Yeah, like, what's the big deal? And then other people really did feel betrayed. The range was very interesting to me. Now, if I were the actress who maybe half fell in love with Savannah, who was your ex sister in law? Asia Argento. I don't know if love, I wouldn't use that. Okay, word no, love no, no. Okay, at no, no. all. Okay, I, I, but, I wasn't going to go there either. Okay, but no, no. I'm just trying to imagine, as we do, you know, such a Cyrano. Right. But let's say I did yes. feel a feeling for Savannah and then found out that Savannah wasn't who, you know, that I might feel betrayed. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that David Milch was 100% correct when he said, what? Well, it doesn't fucking matter what you had to do to write the book. You wrote the book. That's all there is to it. So there's quite a range of reactions. I completely feel that everyone has a right to whatever reaction they had. And if you had a relationship with JT, that's sacred. That's why I couldn't do a celebrity tell-all, and I would not, because I would be a complete betrayal of everything. If you made the relationship public and you started talking, then you've made it public, and I can respond. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's right. my turn, right? Right. The Which emails. is why when Asia Argento says something like, I was completely shocked, I think your comment was something like, wasn't looking at her pussy a little bit of a clue? <laughs> <laughs> she even said in an interview that you can find her quote where she just says, I thought they just made really good pussies. You know? yeah, maybe. And you also mm-hmm. said, I did tell you. I always told people. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but, but they didn't but, hear that. But the thing is, I think it's like a Rorschach test. And... What you see is very subjective, and your reaction very much depends on your proximity to JT. And if you came and talked to me, I have the roadmap to crazy. I can connect the stars. It's kind of like if you look at the night stars, some people will see a bear, some people will see a snail. I can connect them because I put them there. And I'm the last person anyone wanted to come to. Jeff was one of the first, really in depth, to sit and say, okay, you tell me how you put it together. And it's funny because people are like, why don't we hear from other people? And then they'll say, I hate talking head movies. First of all, you've had 10 years of other people. Go back. They're out there. Let me just say that Jeff is the director of the documentary. I'm sorry. I think everyone lives in my head (laughs) (laughs) and knows what I'm referencing. (laughs) Yeah. But the point is, is people had a relationship that was painful. That was hard, especially because the media 
told people that they were tricked. It was a hoax. It was mm-hmm. a joke. Culprit, perpetrator, come clean. The jig is up. The language, if you had to do a sketch from just reading, you would think I had sold crack to children. The language was very rageful. Nobody stepped back and said, why would somebody go to such an extreme to do this? You didn't know anything about me except maybe like what they said, which was like I was a bored housewife and wanted to meet celebrities. So I concocted this scheme to burst onto the literary scene, which is to me is like saying, hmm, I want milk. So instead of going to Safeway or D'Agostino's, I'm going to go to the Swiss Alps and get a special <laughs> cow and pasteurize the milk and milk the cows myself. It's like, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, it's like the most uninteresting answer to the question of how could this happen? The most pedestrian answer that you could come up with. But a story like this, which is so complex, takes time to be understood. I will say, too, that's the story that I came away from in the first days of everything breaking. That's the story Mm -hmm. I came away with. A a middle-aged woman who decided to put one over on everyone. Right. That was what I got from the media. And as I said, I was a big fan of the books. I was very, very moved by the book. So I didn't think about it too much. I just heard that story in passing and thought, huh, okay, a hoax. And so the film just kind of opened everything up in new ways for me. And I think, well, for anybody that sees it. And I keep coming back to this. I mean, it's always stupid to say there are two kinds of people, right? There's people who think there are two kinds of people and people who... And then stupid people. Right? <laughs> but I do think that there are some people for whom understanding the multiplicity of identities and self-images and ways of understanding ourselves that we all walk around with is common sense. Mm. And the kind of fluidity of that is normal. And there are people for whom that's just too scary a thought. They think they know who they are and they're, they're solid in that understanding and they don't want it challenged at all. But I think that for most people, especially in the era now, where we all are used to thinking about avatars online and not being exactly who we are online, I think everybody can understand what it means to inhabit the parts of yourself that are not the official parts of yourself. You know, it's interesting, 10 years ago, we didn't have the word gender fluent, gender variant, and now we have variant avatar. Mm -hmm. You have fluid avatar identity. Yeah. And kids growing up today, we've had that reaction when millennials see the film of saying, um, and the big deal is, um, what? (laughs) Wait, wait, like, Uh why would you want to be yourself? You know, they grew up with multiple, I mean, when they were on the computer, when they were two, they were somebody else. So that's exactly it. But also, I see the film as, among the many things that it is, it's the story of a writer finding her identity as a writer and finding a safe space to write in. As you said, you didn't feel like you could write as yourself. You found this avatar, this character that you would write as. And then when you got to a place, and then this is my projection, and you can correct me, but... When you're meeting really well-known, successful writers, like, for instance, David Milch, and he's saying to you, it's okay, you're the writer, you wrote it, there's nothing to be ashamed of, that that was a kind of final permission to kind of step into the role and own all of it. It's interesting, right when I was moving into myself, the rug got pulled out 
And here I was, I told him right away, we were staying at Carrie Fisher's house and she really connected with JT and not so much me. Mm. <laughs> or I was speedy. She right. never met me actually. So let mm -hmm. me rephrase that. Right. Because people often think that speedy was me, but of course JT wasn't. But no, you didn't meet me. It's the same thing with, there's a story that I love where Daniel Day-Lewis meets Cameron Diaz at a premiere and he goes up and introduces himself and she's like, get the fuck out of here. I'm putting words in her mouth probably. <laughs> I've had you on top of me. It's like we've done, you know, sex scenes and stuff. And, and what she realized is she's never met Daniel Day-Lewis. She only met Bill the Butcher. Mm -hmm. So it was like that. You yeah. never met me. And there were people who were with us for a long time and they never met me. Right, because Speedy was a persona. Another avatar. Oh, be careful, she's going to come out. As, <laughs> as JT's manager, as JT's. And it was wonderful because Speedy was practice for me being an advocate for myself in a way. Mm -hmm. She was very strong. She got shit done. She was fearless and... She didn't care what people thought of her. She protected the work and the writer. And one thing, going back to David Milch, being in that writing room was a phenomenal experience. But again and again and again, after a scene, I remember one scene in particular, it was around Jane, Calamity Jane, and it just was a very moving, powerful scene. And we were talking about how many of the characters on Deadwood are a mystery unto themselves. And I talked to him about it after. I said, I am a mystery unto myself. And he just said, yeah, I, I hoped you were paying attention <laughs> to that. <laughs> and I think so many people are a mystery unto themselves, and we live in this illusion that we know exactly who we are, but I think we are different in many situations. I mean, what is the authentic self? I don't know that this is my authentic self. Is me sitting with my chocolate and tea in front of my computer in my pajamas, that feels like that's more my authentic self without makeup and picking my nose. I don't know, and that's okay. Well, when I'm reading Sarah, I am that boy. The fluidity, when right. we're talking about a fiction, about writing, about the work of the imagination, that transfers to the reader, to and the And I, I needed consumer. that. I needed to do that. I felt so alone in everything I'd witnessed and absorbed and gone through and seen people go through that I really got that craft is the only way to invite people to care and know how do you take problems of the soul and the spirit and transform them into issues of craft and techniques so people care and know about what they didn't before? It digested down like a molecule, and that is craft. Otherwise, it's just news reporting, and they don't care. I'll tell you a fast story. When I was in the group home, okay, it was Upper West Side, 465 West End Avenue was the group home. It was bought by the Jewish Child Care Agency when it was a slum, the Upper West Side, West Side Story, right? And it became this very fancy building where celebrities moved in. And here in their very nice building, there's a state-run group home, foster kids. They didn't like us there. And one day, Barbara Barry, who always played the loving mother in, like, Breaking Away, Suddenly Susan. And she was in the original cast of Company, Stephen Sondheim. Epic. She lived in the building. Anything that went wrong in the building, they blamed on us. 
by accident, one day she rang our doorbell. The house parent, Denise, comes up, opens the door. And she's like, oh, I don't think you want to sign this. And Denise was like, well, what is it? Let me see it. It was a petition to get us out. <laughs> they didn't like us there. When I heard about it, I was so heartbroken. I just was like, do you know the stories of everyone? We have Arena, who was brought in to be, at eight years old, a maid, cleaning people's houses. She was sexually molested, ended up in and out of foster care. Another girl was shot by her father after he had raped her multiple times. I mean, the stories and how hard everyone was working. At one point, everyone was in college except me. They had a special program. It was called Independent Living because they realized that just because you're 18, you don't necessarily age out of trauma. Mm. And they allowed us to stay till 23 because if you're fighting off your mother's boyfriends, you might be very advanced in some areas, but in some you're basically childlike. And we needed to learn life skills. And they also helped us go to college, which was remarkable. And one thing we ended up doing was we had a meet the girls day. So down in this fancy lobby with a chandelier, we were trotted out and they read my story. See, look, look at the girls from 465. We were friendly home for girls. See, we can write. Son Elba, she cooked. Someone else did something else. It's like, here, well, Bojangles for you, so please let us stay here. So, you know, when they said I did things to meet celebrities, I lived with them, and I knew they could take their power and their voice and try to throw us out. So my issue is how do we get their inordinate-powered voice to care about what they didn't care about? Oh, so you invite them through craft to understand and care. And maybe they won't kick us out. And you know what? I did it. <laughs> that's one theory of fiction. That's what Dickens said he wrote novels yeah. to do. Right? <laughs> yeah. And hearts. you know what? I love that because people knew that children were being forced up chimneys. They would set fires under these kids' feet to get them up their fucking chimneys. They knew children were in workhouses and they knew what was going on. But after little, all of oh my God, oh my God, these little boys, oh my God, what are they doing to these, oh we've got to do something about this. No mm -hmm. good, no good. It's art can make the difference to care. And people can shame with us like, oh, misery lit, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Let everybody who has to tell a story, tell a story, and it will work itself out through the marketplace. And what's amazing is there might be one or two that resonates in people, and that has the power to save lives and change how things are. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. One thing of looking at your story, like a, a fiction, like a work of art. The Laura a, Albert story. Yes. Uh -huh. Another thing that's so interesting, again, one of the many facets of this documentary is that you are a character who creates a situation which then spirals completely out of your control. That is a great story because a lot of people who created avatars to 
write books for them never became international bestsellers. I mm-hmm. mean, you had you couldn't have had any idea how far it was no. going to go and how far the deceit, in some right. sense, right, right. was going to have to go when you started out. And that is an amazing story in and of itself. Just where it took you. You could never have planned it. Yeah, and I really normalized it. My partner really didn't know. It was on a need-to-know basis. It's like, oh, we're going to go to you too. And it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, as long as I could keep producing cool stuff and normalizing it. But he didn't know what it really, really was to me and was oxygen to me. But it's kind of like where suddenly you're climbing a mountain and you're very high or you're a little kid and you're climbing a tree, and suddenly you realize that you are way higher than you can jump down. And you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) There's no choice but to keep going up. (laughs) And like hope there's just Jack and the Beanstalk that it takes you up to a cloud where you can hang out with a giant. (laughs) I don't know. What was your relationship with Savannah? How did you, was it hard to convince her to do it? Did she want to do it immediately? Did she understand it immediately? I gave her 50 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it was a one-off, and that was also very organic. It's kind of like people look at this thing, and it looks like the Taj Mahal, and it was really built popsicle stick by popsicle stick. And it was like that with her as well. And she quit so many times, but... For her, she had these amazing experiences. And the thing is, I really feel like he entered her. My son knew when. It was not like we had to do a Tommy, like, you didn't hear it, you didn't know it. (laughs) I mean, he understood when JT, the being, was within, when it wasn't Aunt Savannah, when it was JT, because he would pause, much like a child who's in a trilingual household and makes the choice of which language to go Mm -hmm. into, he was like, okay, you are now JT, it's male, male. He is born into gender fluidity and understood it. If he walked into the room and I was on the phone and he felt the energy within me and he knew that it wasn't mama, Mm-hmm. It was there because I nursed him till he was almost four years old. And he knew, even though I am this very female being, he wouldn't come in and be like, Mama. And I didn't have to do that to him and say anything because it was so readily available, the feeling of what we were. So her body changed. She got facial hair. She lost her period. Things really changed when he entered her. She got way more masculine, and my body changed. I did get weight loss surgery, but a lot of people get weight loss surgery, and it doesn't really take or stay off. And for me, everything really just changed. I felt like I wasn't hosting him in the same way. Mm. He didn't want to be in my body. He really, and there were others before her. I was always looking for other people. And there were others that were in the movie too that was cut. So much was cut from the movie. There was a really cute woman on the street that for Interview Magazine, this is way before Savannah. And I found her and I think I gave her 20 bucks and she wore a hat and it was in a photo booth and Mm -hmm. voila. Would you like to talk about what you're working on now? Mm-hmm. First of all, it's amazing to me that the books are out. Harper Collins released them, and the covers are by a woman 
and I think they did such a beautiful, beautiful job. And I'll tell you something. I was signing books for Goodreads for a promotion, and I had signed a whole box of them, and I realized I had signed JT. Uh-huh. It was automatic, and I was just like, oh, my God. And I realized I had to sign my name. So I put in and, and my signature sucks. I don't even know how to do it. It's like, I do this L and an A and it's like all messed up and it's like, but I got his signature so down. (laughs) It was really funny though. It never occurred to me. I was like, wow, that's a high class problem to have. (laughs) And you could practice. (sighs) So it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I'm a fan of yours as well as the books now. from seeing the film and from talking to you. And at the same time, every once in a while, I think, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. (laughs) And I wonder, am I getting to know you right now or am I not? Only the shadow knows. (laughs) (laughs) But but seriously. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to answer that. Am I getting to know you or not? Like you said that Speedy, Mm -hmm. for instance, was an avatar that really kind of enabled you in important ways. Mm. And is this Laura Albert, the Laura Albert that I would know if we spent a much longer time together? Or is this a a surface phenomenon that's getting you through this interview? Any more than any interview, though? Well, 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 that's one way to answer it. You know, the process of writing really helped integrate and mend the bones more than calling hotlines or playing characters. That really is akin to me for binging or would be drugs or alcohol using. One drink is too much, a million isn't enough, and it never fixes it. That's what calling hotlines was a temporary fix because it really wasn't addressing my pain and what I needed to deal with and PTSD or any of the stuff that I... But there's something about going inside and writing that really helps reveal. There's something about going inside and when I write and I'm available to revelation that has allowed me to integrate in a way that I don't think anything else is possible for me. And writing my memoir, which I'm doing right now, It's hard. I love it and I hate it. My day is successful when I go in. I never know what I'm going to discover when I start. But the process is, it's almost like hearing. I can hear the cells meshing together. And it allows me to be present now. I am so grateful for the gift when people come and they've seen the movie and they've read the work that I am available now for them to share in their experience. They come talking about really intense issues that Mm -hmm. the books bring up for them, hiding, sexual abuse, trauma. It's the gamut and a lot of pain that people have gone through. And they would go to JT, but... They needed to talk to me because she did not have those experiences. And Speedy would go up to them. But they're like, why should I talk to this like kind of wild British woman? But now I am able to be present and in my skin and bear witness. And that is 
really profound for me. And that's an incredible gift. It's like that together we can do what we could never do alone. And that is the most healing for me. And I get to keep it, my sanity, by giving it away and holding people when they come, they come. And I've been, I'll tell you a fast story. I was in Brazil because Brazil was the first country to put my books out under my own name. They understood pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, changing an identity, doing what you need to do to tell a story. They called me punk rock martyr. They had a play about me. I was invited mm-hmm. down with Alice Walker to represent the USA with the other BNL. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So I was down there and, and I'm signing a book for a 16 year old girl and she's shaking and she apologized because she lost her English and we take a picture together and I, I just, I held her and I said, here's my card. Email me. I'm here. And I felt like I would go back to Brazil because I really loved it. And sure enough, I got an invite. It was a couple of months later to go back to Brasilia for their film festival. The day I'm leaving. For me, reality is stranger than fiction. (laughs) If I didn't have the emails to prove it, the day I'm leaving, I get an email. I don't know if you remember me. Here's a picture. Mm. It was from Delisa. And she goes on to tell me that there is sexual abuse happening from a family member. And I tell her, I'm coming. I'm coming today to your city. I'd been in many cities in Brazil. I was coming back to Brasilia where she was. I asked her permission to get help, like trusted people. I met with her mother. I met with her. It was amazing. We got the abuse stopped. We got the conversation going about what was going on so she can get therapy. And she is doing so well. I talked to her a couple of times a week on Facebook. This goes on around the world and it is the most healing for me. So yes, are you getting me Well, you can ask my friends. I am, you know, it's like that Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I am very large. I contain a lot of multitudes. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But I think so. Part of the frisson of the film is the technology. It's these answering machines and fax machines, you know, these Mm. kind of extinct technologies. Mm. So this is a very technical question in a way. Did you keep all of those tapes? Are those real tapes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are real tapes. Did you have a sense that you wanted to use these tapes at some point, or did you, what was the impulse to record everything? Well, I, I grew up like that. My mother had been on quiz shows. She was one of the highest winners on Sale of the Century, and she won a reel to reel. She was on Jeopardy. She was on $10,000 Pyramid. So she won all this recording equipment. <laughs> and so she would set me up in front of the reel to reel. And it was this feeling of hearing myself and knowing that I was real. And I think also just playing with voices and letting them out and character and story, I would do that. And it was something that was always there. My mother, those videos were Super 8. My mother took. She was a documenter. Mm. We had very little money. And my father was an assistant principal in New York City. And... She would document. Mm. And I just was a way of like saying, I am here. You know, like Horton, here's a who. Mm -hmm. How do you puncture the cream brulee of 
popular consciousness and get your voice heard, even if it's only by yourself, to the elephant Horton who protects you and says, we are here. So sometimes you have to be your own elephant. Or maybe you could just say, I'm a serial tapist. (laughs) (laughs) What about Dr. Owen? Did JT ever meet with Dr. Owen in person? No, but I did. Did You you did eventually. Well, the thing is, you see where Speedy goes and meets. You know, the thing is, I think that the movie is so intense that it's a movie that people tell me they want to see more than once. And that's great for a documentary because every time I see it, I see something new. I see something else. But I think it's really easy to not pay attention to his words in it. And what he says is so powerful. Like when he's talking to JT and says, I think how deeply upset or hurt. The things he says are so very true about me. Mm -hmm. And one thing he always would say, how deeply upset you are. And that's something... I mean, I find myself saying I am deeply upset and allowing that just to be. I continued therapy with him after. And I'll just say if there's one person in all of this that had the right to say, you fucking bitch, it's him. And people said all kinds of things about it. And he saved I'm sorry, but he saved my life. I mean, yeah. a lot of people did. A lot of people did, from Milch to Billy to so many people. Mm-hmm. And I've really been lucky of having the angels available that you can withstand an onslaught if you just have... It's like the way I went through childbirth. I surrounded myself with women, and I was induced. I had Pitocin. And I just looked in other women's eyes to get through. It's like that. I can look through into your eyes and I can get through anything. But he treated me. And it was really amazing. I can't express how bizarre it was because he was very familiar with JT's life. And I would forget that he really didn't know my life. But there were so many things that he actually knew because they obviously intersected. And what was really painful and ultimately really impinged on my working with him is it would never feel as good. When I hear his voice, I feel that yearning and that ache because it will never feel as good as having him talk to to Jeremy and the way they connected in that way. Nothing will connect. And It was really beautiful when I would encounter people that didn't want anything in return. There were a lot of people that there was a sexual exchange. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did phone sex. And as someone who, what you will find when people have experienced sexual abuse, they're very attuned. It's almost can appear psychic when they know when somebody wants something else. You can call it like, you know, there's gaydar, there's sexual abuse dar, okay? And in a way, that's maybe why there's re-victimization, because you are aware, and that's why I get so upset when the power imbalance and they use their power, because someone who is damaged, they're more susceptible. Anyway, I know right away when there's somebody who wants something else, and there are so many people that 
They knew they were talking to a boy without parents, and guess what mm. they wanted? <laughs> you know, he was a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. They were upset that the best come of their life was with a 40-year-old <laughs> housewife, <laughs> bored housewife, you know, not mm. a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. Oh, poo. And that was really amazing with people like David Milch and— Dr. Owens, that there was no other reason yeah. for helping this being, and I owe them nothing short of my life. And I really feel like when I'm creating work, I'm hopefully in some way, I can never repay it, but I can in some way offer that forward. And when I'm available to people who are suffering, I feel like I'm somehow paying back what I took, even from people who do not forgive me. When I called and was suicidal, that was real. They bought me another day, and I understand if they're mad and I can't give them back their time, I can only say I'm grateful, and if I could have done it another way, I would have. But Dr. Owens was just um, amazing, and I wish, I wish I could go back and still have Jeremy have his therapy mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. There's This line has been one of these kind of phrases that I always think about. Vonnegut at one point said, you are who you pretend to be. Mm. So you have to be really careful who you mm. pretend to be. And th that kind of sense that of self-creation, which is from Whitman, from before Whitman on, is the mm. kind of essence of the American Jay Gatsby of American possibility, is that you get to pretend to be the person you want to be. And so for anybody to be angry at anybody for pretending to be the person they want to be is a little off the mark, isn't it? But one of the things that I found so moving about Sarah, and I think that anybody who has experienced what it means to be an abused child mm -hmm. understands reading it, is that it's operating on a couple of different levels, obviously, like any good novel. But one of them is the protagonist's ability to find the small quotidian joys of life and the everyday pleasures and everyday anxieties as if his life was not way out on the edge of bourgeois normality. Mm. He goes through his life with a certain integrity um, right. that is maybe taped together, mm -mm. <laughs> right? Held together with popsicle sticks, but is nonetheless real and nonetheless kind of inspiring and beautiful in its own right as a formation yeah, and, and one thing that was always poignant to me that at the end when they come to rescue him, he doesn't even know if he wants to be rescued or mm -hmm. if he believes in that anymore. Yeah, exactly, because we make a life. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when I was um, 320 pounds and I was, I had the testosterone of a man because that often happens in morbid obesity and I was pre-diabetic and insulin resistant and cholesterol through the roof and I could not stop eating. It's kind of like telling someone who's a smoker they have emphysema or lung cancer and they still, you want a cigarette. I just remember saying, God, am I closer to death or life? I think I'm closer to death and I know this is not my path. I know this is not the way I meant to be. I know that I have so much more, that you put everything inside me and what I know and what I can do help me find a way out. And I really feel that Sarah took all of that and it was channeling the craft that I absorbed and 
people directed me to. And it's really of the unconscious. And what's lovely now is once we get past the scandal and the hoopla and the smoke and mirrors, to be able to dissect the actual work. Mm -hmm. And it's all there. That's the thing. There's yeah. a, Remember the scene in Sarah where they're hunting him and he's in the woods and they've got torches and he's revealed to be what he's not. They've turned him into this thing of worship and mm -hmm. now they found out he's not what they created. He's a different gender and they're going to burn him at the stake. And he's hiding in the woods and he's naked and Pooh comes and says, what were you thinking? And he says, I didn't mean for any of this to happen. And when I was writing that, I knew I was writing the future. That scene's in the movie mm -hmm. where I'm telling that to Gus. Yes, right. I was crying when I wrote that. I knew I was writing the future, and there was nothing I can do to change it. And this is before there was JT. There was not, I'd just given birth to my son. It was just what was going to happen. I don't understand it all, but that's the power of art and the craziness of life. Thanks so much for talking to us. I cannot recommend this documentary highly enough. It's called Author, the J.T. Leroy Story, an amazing life, an amazing story, and we are so happy to wait have a minute, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's called Speezy, the Speezy. No, it should be. It should be. That's the sequel. Uh, yeah, well, I know, and no, I just want to prequel. say, that's coming to a <laughs> yeah. very near you, and it's all about me, Speezy. All right, look at us. Speedy needed yeah. some attention, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Now, this is the authentic selfie. <laughs> and I have to say, I think you're very cute. I think you should have yeah. a couple with me after. Uh, okay, sorry, can I hit on him? Can I hit on him? Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> you can hit on him as Speedy, but not as Laura. No, no, no. Laura would never do such a thing. <laughs> uh, so thanks so much for coming in, and thanks so much for talking to us. been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, a half hour. We want to thank Ernesto Orleano, our engineer, Alan Minsky, producer and moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Mary Alexa Cavanaugh, our brilliant scheduling person, and Emerson College for letting us use its beautiful facilities in the heart of Hollywood. I'm Laurie Weiner. For Tom Lutz, this has been the LARB Radio Hour.